Good morning, church. How are you supposed to follow videos like that? You know, I think the, the answer is you can't, and that's why Chris assigned me to preach this Sunday. I'm on to you, sir. Uh, I, I'm not supposed to die back in the Mother's Day, but m- my wife, Arden, is at home this morning because one of her kids threw up this morning after I left to come here and preach. Uh, so I just wanted to say to my wife who's watching at home, Happy Mother's Day. Uh, thank you for being an incredible woman, and my wife and a uh, mother to our daughters. If you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapters 2 and 3. As Chris mentioned last week, we are taking 1 Corinthians in large sections as a church, which means that this morning, uh, I'm not going to be able to read the entire passage out loud at the beginning, because then we'd be done. And we're not going to be able to go verse by verse. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to keep it open. Have it before you so you can look at the passage with me. You can jump around. I believe this morning there are foundational truths that we are in these passages that we must not only read this morning, but we must believe as a church before we move forward in this book. We have to look at these things and not just see them, but believe them. In these chapters, Paul is correcting some misunderstandings and some areas of wrong emphasis that the Corinthian church had. And if we this morning have the same misunderstandings and the same areas of wrong emphasis, then we can do, as Danny mentioned last week, we could empty the cross of its power. So I would like to pray before we dive in this morning. Father God, would you give us understanding this morning? Would your Holy Spirit be at work as the word is preached and as we hear? Lord, would you fill us and would we be doers of your word, not just hearers? We pray that your power and your wisdom would be on display this morning in this church. And we pray that we would grow in maturity and that we would be spiritual. And would you help us understand and walk in that? We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what were the issues that Paul was correcting? I believe we can faithfully summarize it like this. The Corinthians misunderstood the power and wisdom of God. They misunderstood the work of the Holy Spirit. And they misunderstood what it means to be spiritual. And I believe that we easily can do the same this morning. So let's dive in. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you see what the foundation of Paul's ministry to the church is? It's right here in this passage. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Why, as Paul says in his own words, did he decide to know nothing else but this? It's not that Paul didn't have other things to say. Heavens, we know. He's written a lot. 
There's actually a story in Acts where he preached so long, a young man fell asleep and fell out a window. So we know that Paul had other things to say, but he, he's telling the Corinthian church, if, if I boil it down, if my message was made in just one sentence. I want to say this to you, Corinthian church. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. And from there, he impacts the entirety of the good news. Christ means anointed one. So Paul says very clearly, Jesus is God's anointed one. The one that scriptures had been testifying about that is our savior and our hope. He's Jesus. And he's come to rescue mankind from sin and death. And then him crucified. So why would Paul say him crucified and there's no mention of resurrection? Well, he definitely gets there. In this very book, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, without the resurrection, our faith would be meaningless. So Paul's not saying that this is everything. But he's starting here for a reason to this church. He emphasizes the crucifixion. Because the message of God's anointed one being brutally killed, crucified, and hanging in public naked to be mocked and jeered, the anointed one of God dying, God himself, this pokes a finger in the expectations of the world. This pokes a finger in the expectations of the world of what wisdom and power is. It's offensive. It's a foolish and weak message. To emphasize further the point, Paul reminds them that not only in the message is the message foolish and weak, but he says, I, I'm foolish and weak. He says, I came to you in weakness. He came not with lofty speech or wisdom, and he was with them in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So what does this all add up to? It adds up to this. If you want to look strong and wise and powerful in this world, the message of Jesus is not for you. This Corinthian church, if that is your hope, if you want to be seen as wise and strong and powerful to the eyes of other people who are not in Christ, this message is not for you. This message is one of weakness and foolishness. Now, does that mean that the good news of Jesus is actually weak and foolish? Well, yes and no. It's foolish and weak to everything this world values. Let's look at the culture of the church at Corinth together and consider how this message would have been received there. Corinth was steeped in Greek culture. It was a formerly Greek city-state, but it was crushed by the Romans, and it was so thoroughly destroyed that the city was just wiped off the face of the map. And Rome actually refounded Corinth as a Roman colony in 44 B.C., so that means that by the time Paul showed up and he preaches this message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, this new iteration of the city of Corinth had only been around for under a hundred years. Now, it's a Roman colony. But even though it was a Roman colony, it was deeply influenced by the Greek culture. They prize rhetoric and wisdom. Philosophy itself, a Greek word, means lover of wisdom. There would be traveling uh, teachers. They would go around and, and, and they would gather crowds around them and they would use their logic and their way of thinking. And they would speak publicly and use very impressive skills. 
And people would gather around and say, oh, I'm of this teacher. I'm of this philosopher. As Chris said a few weeks ago, he said it was like uh, ancient TED Talks. And that was what was popular. It seems the primary reason the Roman colony was even established again was because in Rome, they had an excess of freed men and women. And so they founded this colony, and then they would send them there so the very early citizens of this colony were on the lower socioeconomic side. And Corinth was strategically located in a port city, which had huge economic implications. So we have fast money being made. This seems to have created a culture of the haves and the have-nots. There was a massive wealth gap in Corinth. So we have a young city culture with an old city reputation. The Greek influence leaned towards wisdom, and the Roman influence leaned towards power and authority. It was a port city with quick-moving wealth and had over 26 sacred places that worshipped various gods. It was a diverse city. And all of this leads theologian Gordon Fee to say this, all of this evidence together suggests that Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. So I want you to think of a city like that and think of this message. Jesus Christ and him crucified. God coming down from power and being shrouded in weakness and him suffering and him dying by the hands of the Roman authorities as if he was a criminal hung on a cross this message did not add up to wisdom and power to this Corinthian culture. It was foolish to them. And it's foolish to our culture today. Today, people believe there's very little supernatural. We increasingly believe in our own strength and our own power to accomplish things. A refrain of our world today is to be true to yourself or to find yourself. And we say trite things like, listen to your heart or my personal favorite, you do you, boo. Our culture increasingly believes that our problems come from outside ourselves and our salvation is found within. But the message of Jesus Christ says the exact opposite. The message of Jesus Christ declares that our deepest problem comes within and our only hope for salvation comes from one who's outside of us. The world tells you, look in the mirror and you will see your salvation and the cross says that's where you see your deepest problem. We need to be saved. And I'm not going to find it by looking deeper in. It's easy for us to agree with this on Sunday mornings. It's the gospel. We understand that. But the pull of looking inward for our happiness, fulfillment, our salvation, it's a constant tug throughout the week. See, we can say for things that are spiritual, especially for our salvation, we can say the gospel's for me. But, but when you look at other areas of your life, it's easy to take wisdom from the world. In our finances our leisure, and our parenting, and our marriages. We cannot look to the cross of Christ and we look instead to Google. 
Let me ask you this morning, what are the areas in your life that you are most tempted to look to the world's advice instead of Christ? Sometimes the wisdom and power of this world can seem so right. But let me ask this. What did it all add up to? I mean, we're talking about the Greek culture and the Roman Empire. I mean, these are heights of wisdom and power, right? People look back and say, wow, yeah, they had it right. The Roman Empire, I mean, that projects power, right? So this is the culmination point in history. And what did it add up to them? All of it together was blindness. They had God in front of them, and they missed him. All the height, all the accumulation of the world's power and wisdom, and they crucified Jesus. This is what Paul's after in verses 6 and 9, if you look down. When he talks about a secret wisdom, he isn't saying there's some extra level to Christianity that only the extra spiritual can know. He is saying that the unspiritual, the unsaved, they can't see, hear, or imagine God's wisdom. It makes no sense. Looking back up at verse 4, Paul ends the first paragraph saying that he came with demonstrations of spirit and of power. What were those demonstrations of spirit and power? We know spiritual gifts were amongst the church at Corinth. We know that members of their church spoke in tongues. And we know that in Paul's missionary journeys, miracles took place. So we know all those things were there. But, but I think Paul's emphasizing something else here. I think he, he's talking about something else in this instance, and here's why. It seems that the Corinthian church, they took the gospel message and they believed it. That's awesome. That's great. Paul calls them in a little bit brothers. But then they tried to marry the wisdom and the power of this world to their new belief. The gospel sat here, and then in other areas of their life and how they do things, they took it from the world. And they created their own form of spirituality that forced the gospel to bow to their worldview and not the other way around. As we will see later in Corinthians, they seemed to make a hierarchy in the church wherever they could. Uh, The wealthy, flaunt your wealth. Right? You, You have impressive spiritual gifts that they deem more powerful. You are more spiritual. And so Paul is trying to pull the Corinthians back to the center of God's power. Their gifts are not the height of the power of God. Not the height. They're part of it, yes. Not the height of the power of God. It's that they actually believe such a weak and foolish message to begin with. And I say this because you look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says, this is the power of God. This is what it is. And and the gospel also is described in the same area as the wisdom of God. It's as if Paul's saying to the Corinthian church, you want the power of God? You want true wisdom? It's in your salvation that you most clearly can see it. It's the best view. The fact that you are saved is a work of spirit and of power. Now, let me jump to another passage for a moment. Jesus had sent out his disciples to go ahead of him into cities. He was on his earthly ministries before the cross. He had his disciples gather, and he said, go. uh, Go before me and, and preach and prepare the way. And they went out before Jesus, and they returned, and they had an amazing time. 
And they come back to Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. They say this. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus, after his disciples come back marveling and rejoicing that demons were subjected to them, an incredible time of ministry. I mean, they, they were liberating people from demonic oppression. This is good. And what does Jesus say? Do not rejoice in this. Your joy is misplaced. Rejoice that you are saved. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do you want to see the power and wisdom of God clearly displayed this very morning? I do. I pray you do. Do you want to see it? Well, here's one way we can see it so clearly this morning. You go look into a Christian's face, a brother or sister in Christ this morning, and marvel that you both believe such a foolish and weak message. That is power from God. That is the wisdom of God on display. Now, does that sound like an oversell to you this morning? It might. I, I totally understand. I want to look at the, the work of the Holy Spirit in this passage. Let me ask you, when you hear someone say the Holy Spirit, what first comes to mind? Is it spiritual gifts? Is it Pentecost? Is it speaking in tongues? Or how about revival? All of those are works of the Holy Spirit. All of those are amazing. And can I just say that, like, we want that in our church, right? We want revival in our city. We want the spiritual gifts in this church in a way that builds up and edifies one another, in a way that displays God's glory to Castleberry, Florida. We want these things. We want them. I, I, I think back just, what was it, a month or two ago where I was supposed to preach on a Sunday morning and, and Alexa came up and shared her testimony how the week before in church she was healed. And then we, we believed that the Spirit led us to open up time for ministry. We prayed for one another and, and the service was changed and I, I preached the following week instead of that week. I want more of that. I want that in this church. I don't mind waiting to preach. This morning I was praying, Lord, if you want to kick me to next Sunday, that's okay. We want to see moves like that. But, but in this passage, Paul wants to show them a work of the Holy Spirit that I think the Corinthian church easily overlooked. And I think we could, we could do the same. Here in this letter, we're coming to, I think, is an overemphasis of the Corinthian church. It wasn't that they attributed something to the Holy Spirit that wasn't a work of the Holy Spirit. But it seems that they had the wrong emphasis. It seems that their minds would first go to the gifts, and in particular, speaking in tongues. But this chapter, we are filled, it's filled with the work of the Holy Spirit. So let me read verses 10 to 16, and I'll quickly summarize. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. 
And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. A natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. There's a lot of work of the Holy Spirit in this. What are the verbs that describe the Holy Spirit's work in these verses? Well, we see two groups. Paul talks about a first group that is proclaiming the gospel and spiritual truths. And he talks about a second group that is listening, receiving, and hearing. So whoever is proclaiming in verse 12 is able to understand what is given by God and then impart it to others. And they teach not by human wisdom, but by the Spirit. And the spiritual person, that is one who's filled with the Holy Spirit, that has salvation, is able to accept the things of the Spirit, understand them, and discern them. So what am I actually saying here? It's as simple as this. When we, any of us in this room, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, there is a work of the Holy Spirit happening. Just by proclaiming those spiritual truths that you believe this morning to someone else, there's a work of the Holy Spirit happening in you and in that moment. And when someone hears it and they accept it and they understand it, there is a work of the Holy Spirit happening in them. That is a moment where we can easily see the work of the Holy Spirit in our everyday lives. If you want to see the work of the Holy Spirit today, share the gospel with someone. And pray you get to see it happen in their lives. Without the Holy Spirit, we would not believe the gospel. So Paul is gently placing the emphasis on the primary work of the Holy Spirit, that we believe and understand the things of, the, of God in the first place. And we encounter this all the time. Can you, can you walk up this morning to another believer in this room and tell them how much you love Jesus? Can you rejoice with someone in this room this morning about how much God loves you? Can you unashamedly, unabashedly talk about how a Middle Eastern Jewish man who taught that we must be washed by his blood is your Savior this morning? And are we not singing songs together about a man who died over 2,000 years ago, and we have a confidence that he was resurrected from the dead and alive right now? Yeah. And that seems wise to us, right? Think about that for a second. That seems wise to us this morning. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit is in you. And, it, and if not for the Holy Spirit, you would think this is absolutely crazy. And maybe you're sitting in your chair right now, and you're like, yeah, that's nuts. You know, I, I couldn't help but think this morning as I was preparing the message and, and I was driving in. I don't know why this kept coming up, but, but if you are here this morning and that sounds nuts to you, I don't. I just have faith it's not going to sound nuts to you for long. I think, I think the Lord is after our hearts this morning. And I couldn't get it out of my head. I don't know, I don't know where this applies, but maybe, maybe a, a woman brought you to church today. Or there's a woman in your life who's been praying for you. Maybe it's your mom, or maybe it's just someone else's mom. But I just... I just want you to know this morning, there are spiritual moms who are praying for you 
And I, I think that the Lord is after your heart. I really, I really, if, if that's you, I'd love to talk to you. Holy Spirit makes this make sense to us. So church, you want to see the work of the Holy Spirit this morning? Look around you. Look around you. This right here, hundreds of sane people who believe and rejoice in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Isn't that wonderful? Right? That's amazing. The, the emphasis of the work of the Spirit puts us all on equal footing. Right? The Corinthians had a tendency to make hierarchies where one would be more spiritual than someone else. But if this is the work of the Holy Spirit and you believe, we're all spiritual. And we're all filled with the Holy Spirit. Which brings me, what does it mean to be spiritual? Before I move any further, I want to make sure I'm not being unclear. I, I don't want to make confusion here. Paul is taking an overemphasis of the Corinthian church, and he's pulling them back to a foundation of their faith. The simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified was supposed to pervade their relationships, their spiritual gifts, their work, their leisure, their finances, and so on. What I'm not saying is that the power of God and, 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 and the wisdom of God and the work of the Holy Spirit begins and ends at your salvation, and that's it. No way. Right? That, that's not what we believe. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We are given resurrection power. We are being sanctified. We are given spiritual gifts to be used to love and build up the church. So if you're sitting here this morning and you have a view that it's, it's I believe the gospel, and then I just can ride it out to the end, that's not the message. Right? There is work for us to do, and there is power in this room today because the Holy Spirit is here. And I know he's here because we are believers in this weak and foolish message. And so God is with us this morning. And so I want to be clear, God is not done with you. You are not saved and then just go living a life devoid of the power of God. No, we, we, we walk in it day by day. So let me get back to something I said earlier. The Corinthian church took the gospel message and they believed it. And then they tried to marry it, the wisdom and the power of the world to their new belief. They created their own form of spirituality, which forced the gospel to bow down to their worldview and not the other way around. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. This verse just boggles my mind. He says, brothers, at the beginning... So he's talking to Christians. But then he says, they're unspiritual people of the flesh and babies in Christ. Which means we can believe Jesus and be Christians and be unspiritual, fleshy babies. That's what we could be this morning. Brothers and sisters, this is what I was talking about moments ago. We're not saved and then we figure out life on our own. The power of God and the gospel is something we grow and walk in the rest of our lives. This is the, what the Corinthians missed. They, 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 they devoided it. They, they, they said that's the power of God for salvation. And then for other areas, we should elevate people. We should come up with our own views on these things. And we should take cues from the world. But the gospel has something to say about every single area of your life. It's to mold us and shape us. And we're to look radically different from this world. 
Paul wants the church here to be spiritual. He wants them to be mature. It's not, as we'll see later in the series, that it was wrong for them to want to speak in tongues of prophecy. No way. He tells them to eagerly desire those gifts. But the church in Corinth had put their emphasis on the wrong things. They came to the gospel and said, yeah, 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 I believe that. I'll put that with all the other things I believe. The message of Jesus Christ and him crucified is not meant to sit politely in a box of our identity. It's not to be ignored in the business of living. The message is to take a hold of our entire lives, your finances, your leisure, your work, your parenting, your marriage, your aspirations, your spiritual gifts, your absolute everything. It's not something we move on from. It's something that everything else springs from. But the Corinthians had a Christianity that was flavored by the world, and it disordered their spirituality. They had the wrong priorities. For the Corinthian church, they showed their immaturity and fleshiness in the way that they divided. They took their worldview of the haves and have-nots, and they created structures in the church for people to be exalted over others. They loved making distinctions, and Paul wasn't having it. So in verse 2 through 4, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being merely human? See, the Corinthians, they thought of themselves as spiritual, but Paul disagrees. And what's the evidence that he brings forth that they're unspiritual? Division, strife, jealousy. See, they had gifts of the Spirit, and he's still saying you're unspiritual because they aren't having the character of Christ. Jealousy and strife is human wisdom. Jealousy and strife is from human power. Jealousy and strife is not a work of the Holy Spirit. And jealousy and strife is unspiritual. As Danny's text mentioned last week, they divided over leaders, and Paul dismantles this way of thinking with a short agricultural analogy. Paul says, I planted the seed here. And Apollos came along and after him watered seed. But who worked the actual miracle of growth? It was God. It wasn't Paul. It wasn't Apollos. It was God. So the work of the Holy Spirit. So who is anything? Is it the planter or the waterer? No, they're just servants. It's God who is everything. He's the one who's exalted in the church of Christ. And so Paul says, we're just servants to you. And, and, and the Corinthians, they're looking for performance. They're looking at skills. They're looking at gifting. They're looking at those amazing philosophers and their incredible public speaking skills. And he says, get your eyes off of charismatic leaders. They are nothing. Put your eyes on God. Or to address the bigger issue with the Corinthians, take your worldview and have it bowed down to God. You are shaped by God, church, not the other way around. How can we struggle with this in our own church? Well, I don't think we have a lot of divisions over leaders here. I don't think. I don't hear it. I don't hear people saying, like, I'm of Chris and I'm of Shane. And if you do, what an incredibly low bar. <laughs> I wonder, though, maybe there are things that, take, uh, that set us apart from others in, in unhealthy ways. Is it, is it your preference in the style of worship? Or the way we pray, or the way that you pray, or someone else prays. How about your view on end times? Maybe, maybe it's your opinions on how ministries should be done. 
Maybe, maybe it's that incessant thought in your head, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Or maybe it's generational divides. Maybe it's I'm of the founding generation and the I'm not. Here's the point. It's not about that there's things that make us unique. There are many things that make us unique. It's when we divide over those moments. It's when we pull apart in those moments instead of coming closer together. The Corinthians, they thought that they were a spirit-filled church, and Paul says, you're not spiritual because of jealousy and strife. So this morning, church, Metro Life Church, do you want to see a spirit-filled church looks like? Do you want to see a move of the Holy Spirit this morning? I know one way we can see it. At the end of this service, you get out of your chair, and you find a brother and sister or sister that you offended, or you have something against, or you have wronged, and you ask them in humility for forgiveness. That is spiritual. Unity, character of Christ, healing this church, that is spiritual. And again, I'm not saying that that's all that's spiritual, but, but Paul wants us to start here. Paul now makes a transition to a construction analogy. He describes himself as a master builder, and he laid the only foundation that can be laid, Jesus Christ himself. Others can come and build upon this foundation, but they cannot lay a new foundation. That is the foundation of the church. This analogy has truth for all believers, but the context this morning is for leaders and teachers in the church. There is a way to make a good building, and there is a way to make a poor building. And what these leaders build with doesn't have the same worth. Not all things that people build on top of the rock of Christ are equal. There is wood, straw, gold, silver, precious stones, and hay. Just because it's there doesn't mean it's good. Some people just make piles. And there's a warning here in this passage. There is coming a day when Christ returns, and on that day, what we have built on the foundation of the gospel will be tested by fire. And some will receive reward and others will suffer loss. Can I just confess in front of you, as a pastor in this church, I am deeply challenged by these words. What I build with, what I work towards, will be tested by the Lord. But can I, can I maybe pull you into and say, hey, leaders in this church, community group leaders, ministry team leaders, people who have influence over people in the church who have giftings like that? What are you building with this morning? And will it be burnt up on the day of the Lord or will it stand? Will you suffer loss or receive reward? Can I, can I suggest some things to maybe consider? I don't think the number of people who attend your community group will mean squat on that day but how you discipled the people that were there. I imagine some of the things that we think are really, really important and matter a lot to us personally will be burned up like straw right in front of our eyes. Maybe moments when we thought we said something particularly profound or spiritual, we'll see that ignite in front of us. But precious stones are the moments of weeping with those who weep, what gold it is when we humble ourselves and serve other people. 
And it's pure silver when you give someone the word of God and not your personal opinion and musings. And yes, Paul's primarily talking about leaders in this context, but what does that mean for all of us this morning? As a pastor in this church, I want to build wisely upon the rock of Jesus. I want the local expression of Christ's church at Metro Life Church to build upon the rock of Christ with beautiful, God-glorifying materials. We want to see that what's built here doesn't stand just another 37 years, but it stands for all of eternity. That's what we want. Can you catch a glimpse with this with me? What we do here could stand for all of eternity. What we do, what we put our work to, our time, our resources, our minds to, how we talk, serve, and love can last for eternity. You know, I love TruthQuest, but TruthQuest will likely burn on that day. Here's what I mean. Our signage, our decorations, our branding, that's going to burn up. The form. But you know what? Other than the snacks, I'm confident will last for all of eternity. The gospel truths our volunteers speak into the little ears of our children. I don't want you to miss this, though. That means right there, just beyond that wall where our children are, there are members of our church who are building with things that will last for eternity. It will not burn up. Don't you want to be a part of that? I love neighbor to neighbor. I love neighbor to neighbor program. It will be tested by fire. What am I confident will last? The love of Jesus expressed by you as you volunteer and you work hard and you give kind and compassionate words. Those days we're out there and we're serving and sweating and you're tired, you are serving the people in those homes. That's precious materials. And I know individuals in this church who, who not only did that but took time to sit with the homeowner and get to know them, and hear about the struggles and the pain that are in their lives, and to cry with them, and to pray with them, and in some instances, to drive them to church. That will last for eternity. Church, let's get in on this. I say this because what you do deeply matters. What is the building that we are building upon the rock of Christ. Look at verse 16 with me. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? What do you think again of the Corinthian church? They are in a city surrounded by temples to false gods. Remember, it's the 26 different places of sacred worship to various gods. Those buildings were built with various materials. And those buildings, those places of worship of false gods were beautiful and impressive. They were meant to project to the world the power and wisdom of the world. What does the temple of God in Corinth look like? What is, what is Yahweh's, the true God, what does his temple look like? It's the people in Corinth. It's the Corinthian church. They are the building. So what are we laying on the foundation of Jesus in Castleberry, Florida? We are building a house of worship to God that is filled with the Holy Spirit. It is made up of men and women around you right now, brothers and sisters in Christ. You are the living temple. 
And although we are not particularly beautiful and impressive by worldly standards, I'm sorry to break the news. This temple is so precious to our God. And it projects God's power and wisdom to the world. This is what his wisdom and power looks like. It doesn't look like the temples of false gods. It looks like a community, a body of people living in unity and loving and serving one another. It looks like people who believe the crazy, foolish, weak message of Jesus Christ and boasting in him. It looks like people not exalting themselves, but humbling themselves, boasting in their weakness. Can you catch a vision of that church? Can we build this church together that it is a work of the Holy Spirit that proclaims God's wisdom and power to this world? And would it truly be filled with spiritual people because we're filled with the Holy Spirit? So let's reject the wisdom and power of the world. Let's hear Paul in verse 20 when he reminds us that the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and that they are futile. Let's not boast in men. Let's not divide the church. Let's remember that we have everything so we can embrace being weak fools in the eyes of the world. We can look strange to the unspiritual who don't know why we rejoice that we are Jesus' people. And we can be a temple here in Castleberry, Florida, where the lost that are out there can enter into not this building, but this community, this temple. And they can look around and say, truly, God is here. Let us live to that end.